This is Stinky Lulu Says, and a regular podcast about contemporary theater. I'm Brian Herrera, and I'm Stinky Lulu. I'm also a theater professor, and I see a lot of shows. And Stinky Lulu Says is where I have my say about what I see. And in this current cycle of episodes, which will which arrive to your podcasting service each Sunday from the beginning of February 2021 until at least the end of April, that's pretty soon, I offer my own weekly reflections on what it's like to teach a college course on theater and society now when all the theaters and all the colleges are still trying to figure out what it means to do theater or to do college remotely during an ongoing global health crisis, not to mention political chaos, economic precarity, demands from racial reckoning, basically all the still unfolding uncertainties that define the year 2020 and which continue to shape our discovery of whatever it is the year 2021 might yet have in store for us. And in this week's episode, I'll spend a little bit of time thinking about some recent and recent-ish declarative decisions to step away from one's profession. All as I ask the question, what does it mean to publicly announce that you are stepping away? So, without further ado, here we go. So, uh, today's episode, I want to talk about this idea of doing a public declaration that you're um, stepping away from your job, or that you're taking a break and that you're choosing to do so uh, like stepping away, perhaps permanently, perhaps temporarily, perhaps indefinitely, uh, that you're stepping away. Because in some ways you might notice that I am doing some public declarations of my own lately. I'm saying that this podcast is likely going to come to a, to a finish of some kind in the next few weeks. That's in some ways a version of what I'm talking about here, this idea that I am stepping away from the podcast. Um, and uh, this is something I've been thinking a lot about this week for a variety of reasons. It's It's sort of fascinating to me that the last episode of the podcast from two weeks ago really thought about the idea of a manifesto of doing a a public declaration of what you believed a statement of belief or purpose as we talked about it a manifesto which was both a sort of a way to think about one's past as a way to name and chart one's future and i'm struck that the following episode the episode that follows the manifesto is actually thinking about this other kind of genre of performative declaration of a declaration that sort of makes into being that which it call that which it names um, which is a little bit different than a manifesto. Remember what we talked about with a manifesto was that a manifesto thinks through the past to name something about the present in an aspirational vision that could be polemical or inspirational or aspirational for the future. So bridging the past, present, and future in a kind of an intentional blend that is about an act of creative self-making. Now, what I'm asking us to think about today is another performative declaration, a declaration that in its utterance creates a new reality, is uh, which is the actual definition of performative, not performative as in terms of theatrical and meaningless and only for show, but this idea of a performative declaration that is by saying this, I begin to instantiate or make real the reality that I'm naming. And what I'm struck by is this constellation of examples I've encountered this week of folks um, taking a public stand to step away from the expectations, from to step away from their job uh, temporarily, permanently, indefinitely, whatever it may be, but to step away and to make a choice and to sort of use the term, use that moment of saying, I am doing this for a particular set of actions. Of course, this is mostly prompted by the um, 
public declaration earlier this week, middle um, around uh, April 14th or 15th by Karen Olivo, a noted and celebrated actor who was current, who was who was playing the lead role in um, in the Broadway musical Moulin Rouge, who had developed a piece had traveled with it for a number of years and and was well poised to sort of continue to return in sort of a triumphant, you know, sort of was is a major professional career triumph and was anticipated that when the when Broadway reopened, that Karen Olivo would enter would be part of the reopening of Moulin Rouge. Well, this week, in about uh, uh, Wednesday or Thursday of this week, Karen Olivo made a very public declaration saying, uh, and very public in the very 2021 way, she did a video on Instagram where she named that she would not be returning to Moulin Rouge and indeed was indefinitely stepping away from her work in the at the highest tiers of commercial theater. Um, and she did so, and uh, Karen Erlevo, who also uses they, them pronouns, and I'll be doing trying to do a little bit better job of reflecting that in my comments right now, is um, as Olivo did so, they did so in a way to sort of underscore not only that this was a... Uh, that this was not in what I would say is that the that their statement was was naming the fact that it wasn't in response to a particular instance of harm, but their choice to sort of step away from what they felt was an apparatus, a structure um, of production that was not helpful and was more harmful that did more harm than it did good. And what's notable about this is many people interpreted um, uh, Karen Olivo's uh, uh, declaration of departure uh, as being sort of a direct rebuttal of the of Scott Rudin. Scott Rudin, a, no, a notorious main major producer of Broadway shows, who had recently come under different kinds of public scrutiny for what had long been a, a widely understood pattern of his being aggressive physically and otherwise bullying behavior and sort of a toxic boss, sort of a classic example of a toxic boss. But as uh, uh, the first of its kind major um, magazine profile uh, delineated not only just he's a bad boss and a mean boss, but also that Scott Rudin actually was physically abusive and created a context of constant physical assault on employers of all employees of all kind of all sorts. And that there was a, and that, that, that article published, um, uh, by a writer named Tatiana Single, Siegel in The Hollywood Reporter on April 7th of 2021, um, ended up leading to a different, a different degree of taking serious what folks, quote, everyone had known. It made, um, it made what had been the open secret about Scott Rudin's uh, violent behavior, it put it into a different kind of register. It put it into print, it put it onto paper, and it made, and people's names were attached to it, therefore making what had been a sort of an open secret an actual sort of uh, contestable fact. And so, um, so it shifted that dynamic. And one of the things that came up is, uh, as many, many of you listening to this will already know, Scott Rudin happens to be one of the most influential producers on uh, in commercial theater today, the person, the kind of person who can leverage the resources and the capital and the call and make the calls and get the get the Broadway real estate holders attention in ways that has an incredibly and indeed has, has been discussed an outsized impact in terms of both the financial and cultural ecosystem that is the commercial theater in New York City. And so in the context of Karen Olivo stepping away from what had been one of the most high profile non Scott Rudin productions, it opened up this question of the ways in which was Karen Olivo's um, declaration of departure, uh, a direct response to the case of 
of, of Scott Rudin. And in some ways, what's important about Olivo's declaration is that she makes it clear that no, it wasn't in re- direct response to Scott Rudin, but indeed the industrial silence subsequent the revelations, the more than one week of silence following everything that had come up and that, that nobody in the industry had really spoken out and nor even had the New York Times published an article about these allegations. Um, Olivo saw as a symptom of the broader structure of harm that they felt were not really worth their own spirit as they um, as they noted one of the most sort of evocative lines that um, that names what Olivo says in, that punctuates what Olivo says in in their de- declaration of departure is I want a theater that matches my integrity uh, and what um, Olivo does in this piece which is followed up by an important interview in American theater magazines clarifies that her vision uh, that Olivo's vision for what they're doing is that they are saying that as an artist, they don't necessarily know that it feeds their spirit as an artist in terms of creative work, um, noting the the ways in which the work, the labor conditions, eight shows a week, grueling, grueling competition, grueling um <clears throat> grueling stamina requirements, that it's actually not good for the artist's body. And then also that finally what Olivo named, Olivo, who is also an educator teaching at uh, Cincinnati Conservatory of Music, um, I believe that's right, um, is uh, also saying that it Olivo was con- concerned that by participating in an industry that they viewed as damaging and harmful, that that was actually perpetuating um, negative role modeling kind of lessons. That by participating in an industrial structure that they had qu- that they had moral qualms about it, they felt it was increasingly morally suspect of them to continue to engage in that industry um, uh, because they could see the ways that the industry was still fueling the dreams of a rising generation of artists. And so Olivo's departure was very clear in that they said, I can do this. I, um, I know that people will think, uh, I mean, I can afford to do this. I know, but I also that it's a major, uh, it's a major hit to my paycheck, but uh, my pocketbook, but it's not worth it anymore. And of course, this is in the context of Olivo's work over the last year, where they have been a very forthright um, advocate and activist around a lot of a lot of areas of trying to create a sort of a lobbying voice for arts workers more broadly. And so in some ways, Olivo's departure, while shocking, was in direct alignment with a lot of the work that Olivo had been publicly doing over the last year. And indeed, as the article uh, published a couple days later in in American Theatre magazine, indicated that Olivo had made a break with the industry before, really questioning whether or not the industry was aligned with their goals and aspirations as a human, as an artist, and as a as a person um, raising children and mentoring mentoring young artists. So, so Olivo's public declaration was striking to me for a number of reasons. I've you know in this context. <clears throat> um, uh, in this context of of a year of uh, after a year and a half of reckoning around racial racial equity, about the financial facility, about why have artists been without leadership voices? Why has there why has the American theater been revealed to be a sort of a weird constellation of of buildings and billionaires and nonprofit 
organizations that are that the that are that what unites it as the American theater is this very loose tether of a broad ad aggregate of enormously talented freelance workers who have been left um, without advocacy and with in many cases without any kind of safety net or financial income because there was no American theatrical apparatus that was really there in place to do them and indeed this is something that I've talked about before on the podcast the way that the American theater has been revealed to be a uh, um, defined by this web, this network of freelancing artists, um, not necessarily by anything res resembling an industry or an industry leadership. So, so there's a kind of way that um, this announcement of Olivos in this context was fascinating, a particular example of what's going on in the arts, etc. Um, and in punctu and in, in and in contradistinction to what another announcement of somebody who chose to step away or step back from their responsibilities, Scott Rudin, who um, finally, after a number, after after uh, ten days, issued a um, what Tatiana Siegel called a template apology, saying that they acknowledge that they um, that they should have done something sooner and they're stepping away from their responsibilities in order to sort of end that so that they can uh, address the behaviors. So it was your standard issue kind of I'm going to rehab announcement of a public celebrity who's been caught doing bad things. So it's the question is, is what is the consequence? Uh, the questions still are outstanding in terms of will this create a new opening for different kinds of producing producers, different kinds of production models are reckoning about the ways in which influence and power is being influence and power is peddled among the real estate uh, agents that are the three owners of most of the Broadway theaters is a question of what consequence this will have or this is, or if this is in the mode of sort of PR image rehabilitation that will allow Scott Rudin to run things quietly from behind the scenes but not necessarily while also sort of reinventing or reimagining their career moving forward so in some ways we have two very different uh, stepping aways with Rudin and Olivo. Both made these public declarations that they're stepping away from their primary responsibilities, but one was offering a critique of the industry and one was offering a sort of, I'll do what I, I'll, I'll, I'll step away so I can do what I had been doing without the bad things. And so these two ideas of this public declaration of stepping away is something I think is, is, is an interesting question because they're both born in this contemporary moment out of the impulse to, um, from the best of my 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 awareness, like what seems very clear to me to be an impulse toward how do I be a, how do I feel like how am I going to be accountable to myself and to those around me in relationship to this industry? And what we see is the very different value statement going on is that Olivo's declaration of independence um, is saying that there is nothing about this structure that I feel I can maintain integrity with. Indeed, um, this idea I need a theater that, that aligns with my integrity is a very striking statement as both a sort of a, a self-statement, a manifesto kind of self-statement. But then, you know, especially given that it's followed by in her statement, in, in Oliva's statement, it's followed by them saying something to the effect of we need to find other ways of collaborating, of making art together without relying upon these existing structures of exploitative, um, ex existing exploitative structures that are so invested in power, status and prestige. In contradistinction to the Scott Rudin statement, which, as I sort of noted in my summary, is basically saying, like, um, I'm going to go sit in the corner for a while, but and I'll I'll reflect on all the things I've done wrong, but I'll be back. Uh, neither, or like Olivo's, Olivo leaves very carefully, like very carefully unstated the ways in which uh, she's not stepping, she's not stepping away from art, but they are stepping away from uh, the industry. And this is an interesting sort of 
uh, line that's drawn. And part of the reason I wanted to rehearse this a little bit and think through a little bit about how these statements work is because as I was listening to them this week, I was reminded of another genre, which for many, which for some listeners of this podcast will be a genre with which they're 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 very familiar, and other other um, listeners of this podcast, this will be the first time you've heard of it, likely. And what it, it's what I'm calling, what is often called in the industry, and has emerged over the last ten years to be called quit lit, academia's quick quit lit. That is the idea, quit lit. Um, as in to quit and literature and lit as in short for literature. And what it describes is a, not so much a booming, but a sort of a recurring, a recurring uh, set of essays that appear periodically, sometimes on major platforms, sometimes just in somebody's Facebook feed um, of sort of uh, goodbye letters as folks who are fully credentialed academics, um, PhD, having earned or nearly earned their PhD, um, making a choice to step away from the academic profession as a result of the particular brutality of the hiring Typically, as a result of the typical, typical uh, of the of the hi- brutality of the hiring apparatus, the lack of the lack of tenure track jobs, the sort of the 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 difficulty of gaining a permanent position, um, the uh, the continued proliferating production of PhDs, even with this diminishment of job returns and the sort of the disconnect between the educational systems that create the PhDs and the lack of professional opportunities for folks having completed the arduous and often uh, arduous process of completing a PhD with often a great degree of personal and professional and and financial sacrifice along the way. And so over the last um, 10 or so years, there's been a, there's a cycle. It's a familiar genre at this point, enough so that when I was preparing for this, for this week's newsletter and this week's podcast, I discovered that there is a currently um, call for papers out for an edited anthology uh, assessing quit lit as a genre, as a genre of social critique and commentary, but also as an expressive form. And so it's enough that it's inspired its own academic anthology. Quit lit is a thing, and it's not necessarily just a new thing, but it is a thing that has, um, in the era of social media, has ended up being able to have a certain degree of currency and commentary because each quit lit piece is often designed to be shared, designed to be shared, commented upon, because in some ways, uh, and what a typically a quit lit piece um, follows is a fairly conventional formula, which is somebody describes their own experience, their love of learning, how they just, how they found themselves on the path to the PhD, describing the difficulties and the struggle of getting the PhD and how much was sacrificed along the way, as well as how much work was undertaken, typically also naming the fact that the it was worth it because doing the work was something they really believed they loved doing. And that work might be research, might be teaching, might be service, or might be some combination thereof. And then there's a pivot point somewhere uh, along where they realize it was no longer worth the sacrifices because of uh, they like either lack of jobs or lack of uh, appropriately compensated jobs, the grind of continuing to work on part-time or adjunct positions, just something about the humiliations and disappointments and exploitation that collide in this particular juncture leads to the moment where the author is writing at the point of the at the, the point of the piece 
writing that's saying, I'm stepping away. I'm no longer going on the job market. I'm, I'm going to go do something else, all these different things. And, um, and of course, with transferring out of 10 years of professional productivity to a new career is never easy. And so part of it is also uh, sort of acknowledging the fact that they are leaving uh, broadly, uh, typically that when one leaves the academy, one leaves a sort of a network of, of interpersonal relationships that are hard to maintain because of the very, you know, you're just, it's like moving to another city, except you are moving to a different circuit of cultural exchange. And so, and also the pain and the loss of, of, of letting go of a dream. And so, so Quitlet um, has uh, a lot of naysayers, a lot of folks who, um, make fun of it or talk about it as a kind of a why are you like it, it's sort of sometimes regarded the way people's periodic announcements that they are leaving various social media platforms are is like what's that for what's that about and uh there's a kind of a an embarrassment uh, or a weariness of the fact that like what do you want to meddle from a like a kind of response that sometimes attends to the appearance of these of these declarations and uh, but I've always been fascinated with the quit 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 quitlet as a genre as a genre you know there's been times in my own professional life where I've considered how would I how would I make my exit how would I step away from this path that I've been on for so long that has so defined so many of my life so many of my relationships so many of my life choices so many things how do I make how do I break up with academia and indeed once you think of it in terms of that intimate relationship you realize that the profession was pretty abusive and pretty exploitative and it was like you can break up with academia but academia won't even notice that you're not around anymore and it does underscore the ways in which the industry is a machine that just needs new talented labor of which there is an unreal un un uh like a ever replenishing supply of folks who are capable of doing the job you do so it's a fascinating genre, but the thing about it that I was really struck by was the ways in which um, I feel like we're beginning to see the, a new form of quitlet emerging in the arts, which I don't know that I'd ever really noticed before. And I think what we're going to be seeing, again, relying upon social mediated platforms, whether it's an open letter or whether it's a, a direct-to-viewer sort of video feed, as Olivo's was, we are seeing what... Um, we are seeing the uh, theatrical version of Quitlet beginning to emerge, of folks saying it's no longer worth it, and of it, I think it will soon be a fairly legible genre, just as we've seen more recently, the open letters of abuse, like folks naming their abuse, their experiences of abuse in sort of social mediated broadsides. We're also beginning to see folks saying it's no longer worth it. I'm stepping away. I'm doing something else. I'm going to, I'm, I'm no longer doing this. So instead of what had long been the case of folks who had sort of, sort of migrated out of their work in the professional theater um, by either sort of making a transition into another industry, adjacent industry, perhaps like the academy or something like that, or by sort of instead of doing as much performing, they suddenly open up, a, uh, uh, they start opening up a PR firm or they start writing or they start, you know, these sort of transition careers and this idea of many arts careers have a limited shelf life. So what are you going to do next? So this kind of thing of people transitioning out here, what we're seeing is we're seeing something a little bit more of an ab abrupt break that is announced publicly. 
And this is something that's slightly different, and it did put me in mind of the of the basic conventions of Quitlet. And here I want to pull in the voice of Carrie Ann Rockmore. Carrie Ann Rockmore is an academic entrepreneur who, after uh, earning tenure as, in African American Studies as a sociologist at the University of Urbana-Champaign, uh, did a reassessment of her own life and her own goals and decided that she no longer wanted to do this and stepped away and set up a consulting firm, uh, uh, basically um, helping academics succeed. So what she, she as, as I understand her story, Carrie Ann Rockmore sort of went through an assessment of what were the things that she enjoyed doing the most about her job and, and cut this, and which were teaching and mentoring and uh, doing, uh, action, doing research that was directly connected to improving the lives of those around her. And she realized that by doing it in a consulting capacity, she could do almost everything that she loved the most without putting up with some of the other things she didn't love as much about the job. So she went out hung out a shingle as a consultant offering workshops, classes, and, and, and talks, and ended up having a fairly sizable business. Um, uh, 10 or 12 years later, it's a really sizable business. And so uh, uh, some years ago, about, uh, you know, about five or six years ago, there was an article in Slate magazine online about um, Quitlet and talking about the phenomenon of Quitlet. And, um, and, one of the things about it is uh, in it, uh, Carrie Ann Rockmore sort of offers an assessment, a four point feature of the genre of Quitlet that I found to be quite valuable. And what she says is um, what she told the author of this piece, this 2015 piece called The Rise of Quitlet by Colleen Flattery, Flaherty. Uh, via email, Carrie Ann Rock Rockmore told Flaherty that there were four components of what Quitlet needed. And as you listen, I would encourage you to listen, to think about how many of these boxes Karen Olivo's Declaration of Independence also names, which is, uh, Rockmore says that Quitlet needs to, you publicly explain your choice to leave, to, and that's point one. Point two is, uh, it's a way to be seen and to be heard after years of feeling ignored, devalued, and dismissed. Uh, point three, to be a role model for others to think about leaving and or four, to provide your own critical analysis of the state of the industry, in this case, the academy or the theater, the state of the industry on the way out the door. So this, these four points, I think, are really useful to think about as we continue to see perhaps the phenomenon of what is this stepping away from the profession that we're hearing? Is it a boilerplate uh, statement that is saying, like, I'll go sit in the corner and I'll be back? Or is it something that's doing a sort of a constellation of different works so that's sort of a, related to, but different from the manifesto, a way to just explain and to publicly name and on in one's own terms, one's choice to leave the professional path that you are on. And then on the other hand, then also to sort of be seen, have those experiences that inform that decision be seen and to be elevated on your own terms without them being devalued or ignored and marginalized as, oh, she couldn't cut it, or, oh, he always was complaining of instead putting a frame around the experience in a way to sort of name it and lift it as having its own integrity. And then also, I think, th so that's the first point, to explain your choice and to do it on your own terms, to say what it means. And indeed, one of the most interesting gestures uh, in Olivo's piece is they're very clear, clear to say, I want you to hear this from me before it gets spun. This awareness is like, I'm going to put my own framing on it so that my own framing uh, can be part of the conversation that follows, as opposed to what happens is if you don't put a framing on an un unexpected choice, then typically the worst is assumed.
So how to hold on to that degree of agency and at least offering one's own framing so it's a part of the conversation and not reactive or defensive. So to explain your choice and to do it on your own terms. And then also to be a role model, to sort of say this can be done. I think that this, is, again, is something that Quitlet and academia have in common because in um, for somebody to, say, step away from an assistant professor tenure-track job, it is considered to be bad form because you had opportunities other people didn't. Like uh, there's hundreds and hundreds of people that would love to have that job. What what makes you so great to say it's not good enough for you? There is that kind of burden of 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 silence. It's a coercive sensibility that you should be grateful for the opportunities you have, even if they are even if you find them completely stultifying or to- toxic or abusive. So so part of what it is is, and that leads to a broad culture of nobody would ever. Uh, think of saying out loud that they were leaving. And indeed, I can attest that in academia, the um, stigma against folks naming the possibility of their departure from the field is quite strong. And then finally, so so there's on the one hand, so, uh, and then finally, there is the piece in this about doing a little bit of a structural analysis of offering your critical assessment of the of the what is bad about the industry as you see it on your way out the door and so in this way what i think is really notable is the ways in which olivo's Declaration of Independence actually follows the genre form that Carrie Ann Rockmore names as the potential purpose and utility of quitlet, of academic quitlist. It's both a sort of a framing your own decision on your own terms, offering it as an option in a field in which the options are that it, in which that kind of intentional choice is not like it's off template. So it's sort of implausible to sort of break from practice sort of speaking the possibility in a hegemonic frame that doesn't necessarily think of this option as a legitimate option. And then finally, to do so in a way that names and frames a critical analysis of the industri- of, of the industrial operation, of the, indus- of the way the industry operates just as a matter of course, to offer a critical framing of that, an analysis of that, and a critique of that in the context of one's departure. So what's striking to me is how much Olivo's, P- uh, Olivo's declaration is uh, has in common with what we would call quitlet, which again reminds us that both the academy and the theater are spaces, and this is a thread I've talked about throughout these classes, is a space in which um, ideals of inclusion, democratic access, and self-expression are often elevated in industrial contexts that often lead to incredible amounts of, of of exclusion and of despair and of competition and of all kinds of other values that seem to be in contradistinction to the values that are named. So this tension between industrial practice and the aspirational goals of these two forms, the academy and the theater, um, they find some interesting affinity here in ways that I don't know that I would have expected, nor that are ways that I have ever really seen as articulated as so cleanly and so clearly as what Olivo did in their departure statement. At the same time, Olivo's departure statement was a phenomenon. It made sense. People listened, people heard, people agreed, people nodded. And I wouldn't be surprised if we begin to see other folks framing their transition away from the theater in ways that also follow such statements of independence as modeled by Karen Olivo this week. And so when I think about what does it mean to publicly declare that you are stepping away, I'm beginning to think that we are seeing a new genre of quitlet coming into formation. Um, I'll pause for a moment and I'll come back to talk a little bit about an early example of 
this that we might look to from just a few years ago from the playwright um, Chiara Alegria Hudes um, after a brief break. So as I was thinking a lot about how Olivo's stepping away, her Olivo's declaration of independence um, from the American theater, uh, in the, from the industry of the American theater, I was how I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about that a lot this week, um, trying to figure out what it reminded me of. And I realized that one of the only other spaces I had heard something similar be named was a couple of years ago at the 2018 Association for Theater and Higher Education Conference, um, Chiara, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Chiara Alegria Hudes, who is known for um, a number of plays that she's written, but perhaps most famous for her contribution to writing the book or the story of uh, In the Heights. And she is the, one of the lead producers of the upcoming film and her screenplay actually reimagines the film in notable and substantial and important ways. So, so she's, and then also Chiara Alegria Hudes is known for other plays as well as another, another recent musical called Miss You Like Hell. So um, writing plays, writing musicals, and then a new memoir called My Broken Language. Uh, so a notable and important cultural voice that that um, sort of came to prominence in American letters and American life through the theater. Um, two years ago, Hudes, along with her sister, Gabriela Serena Sanchez, were um, uh, gave a duologue presentation at as a keynote address at the national meeting of the American the Association of Theater and Higher Education, a national conference that gathers together theater educators in colleges, universities, and and uh, other other sites of higher education uh, across disciplines. So you've got historians, theorists, you've got voice teachers, you've got acting teachers, directors, designers, all different disciplines. It's the biggest conference in the field, and it is. Um, it's an interesting conference, and it's a conference that professionally I sort of am on the hook to go to. Um, I try to go at least once every year. I try to go about once every other year, sometimes more regularly, sometimes less so. But what I will say, and one of the points is they often bring really notable and interesting scholars and artists to offer keynote addresses. And I recall when I attended and made a point to attend the Judas Sanchez keynote, I didn't know what to expect, especially didn't understand necessarily what was going on with them choosing, uh, even though I knew both Chiara Judas by reputation, and I actually knew in person Gabriela Serena Sanchez, who is a Philly-based um, uh, theater maker and social activist, uh, who I became familiar with through a variety. I'd seen their work and they'd come to a couple things, so I'd become familiar with them through different channels. And I became familiar and an, ad, an admirer of Gabi Sanchez without even realizing that she was Kiara's sister. So it was an interesting moment for me to see these two artists I had really quite a lot, great deal of prior admiration and respect for, to see them join the stage as sisters of very different generations, talking about their shared but quite different engagement with the practice of using theater for transform as a transformative tool. And... Um, one of the things about the thing about the presentation is in it was a breathtaking moment in the the big convention hall at the conference in Boston when Kiara because uh, it's framed as a dialogue where the two sisters sort of banter back and forth, sharing memories, talking about different things, sharing a degree of um, sort of sisterly um, conviviality, and then each goes into an extended uh, sort of 
monologue about their own sort of vision of their own role as artists in the world, as the other is the primary listener, but also as a, as a primary listener in relation, who's part of the audience that is listening. So it was an interesting form, what we might call a duologue, um, sort of two monologues that are conjoined by dialogue, and that the audience that each list that each, so it wasn't really a play, because it wasn't like that said that Gabby and Chiara spoke these monologues to each other, but they were speaking to each other and also having dialogue with each other, but also understanding that they were each other's audience, but also acknowledging that we were an audience there. So it was a really interesting format for holding the space of the solo voice of these extended discursive sections within the monologue. This, um, uh, within each speaker's sort of extended per first person story. Um, the full text of this is accessible through the Theater Topics uh, Journal, the, the Theater Topics Journal, which is published by ATHA or the Ameri the Association for Theater and Higher Education, uh, published the text of the journal in their uh, flag, uh, published the text of the keynote in their flagship journal, Theater Topics, in, um, in uh, March of 2019, with a picture of Chiara and uh, and Gabriela on the cover. So this is a, um, what was striking though about it is I happen to know both of these artists. Uh, so I, I think I had a slightly different relationship to what was going on, but many people, including many of the people sitting immediately around me, didn't know who Gabby was, just only knew that she was there because she was Kiara's sister. Didn't really know that she was a substantial and a really quite influential artist in her own right, but they were there because Kiara is one of the most successful artists, uh, women artists of her of her era, especially as somebody who straddles different genres, who's gotten a Pulitzer, all these things. And there was a shocking moment, a moment when you could just sort of feel the reverberation running through the room, when in this in the context of this speech, uh, Kiara um, uh, says, I, um, I fear that the ways theater has harmed me are winning out over the ways theater has nourished me. And she names that she is stepping away, that she had called her agent and had put a pause on all of her forthcoming projects because she was going to go write a book and she wasn't going to do any more theater. So she had called her agent to maneuver and to get out of all of those other commitments and recognize it was going to be a financial risk and a financial problem and all these things. But she was stepping away from the theater because, as she says, I fear that the ways theater has harmed me are winning out over the ways theater has nourished me. She talks about that affecting her physically. She talks about creating her emotionally. She talks about these sort of experiences of mental crisis that come through this. And she makes it, and she describes some notable experiences of what we might call microaggressions, but these sort of particular ways of the interpersonal manifestations of structural violence sort of showed up in her lives, in her life. But the idea that somebody like Kiara would step away from the theater caused something of a really quite remarkable ripple in the audience around me. I found it to be incredibly beautiful and incredibly brave and incredible and startling in its impact because it was like, wow, the structural problems are deep. If some of even someone like Kiara, and just right now I put up scare quotes, uh, that if this goes at the highest levels, then the stuff that we're encountering, what we're encountering, it's real. But what was striking to me is in Q&A, a lot of folks were saying, oh, but you're coming back soon, or oh, this is temporary, or oh, oh, you can't leave, you're so great. You, you know, what about all the plays you've left to write? All these things that were about a possessive investment in the ideal of what theater was, and without really taking seriously exactly what Kiara had named, and named in some ways that would follow Carrie Ann Rock more formula. 
of naming her choice, giving it meaning and context in her own terms, um, of sort of offering it as an example of something that you can do this, that this is an option. I am asserting that this is an option. And in so doing, also offering a structural analysis of what's wrong with what's going on. Now, like Olivo, Hudes is not saying that theater is never going to be part of her future, but she is saying that the sort of month like the prime like theater is no longer going to be a primary place of seeking artistic home and this is a really interesting set of questions just and olivo i think is saying all the way through olivo's statements is saying that the commercial theater is not a place that they are will, willing to invest all of their their craft their spirit their energy and their integrity so there's a way in but they're not saying that theater and and indeed in Oliva's statement there's a real affirmation of creating a space for a rising generation of artists that isn't going to be characterized by these same structures of violence and abuse so so it's an interesting thread of how this idea of stepping away from expectation can be so threatening because indeed as i exited the hall i was struck by the murmurs <clears throat> and by the in particular, one interaction where somebody was deeply incensed that Kiara was so privileged that she had no idea, like how insulting it was to say what she said on a stage. And I was like, "Whoa, that does not make any sense to me. But <clears throat> but there is a kind of way we're speaking away from the orthodoxy. Because I think part of what when I was reminded of Judith's uh, speech from a couple of years ago in the context of Olivo's declaration of this week, I was reminded of just how it is about speaking against orthodoxy. This is not something you're supposed to say. You're not supposed to say it's terrible. You're not supposed to say it's horrible. You're not supposed to say it's not worth it. That this is sort of speaking against a de facto orthodoxy. And that orthodoxy shows up in a lot of different places. But indeed, I think that that's part of why listening to the form, listening to the expressive cycle, listening to the ways in which these declarations of independence sort of take their shape. And the, what we can learn from Quitlit as uh, a genre that has emerged as folks are really naming the structural failures of the academic industry, um, what we're what we can see as draw upon what has happened in Quitlet as a way to see what is I think might just be on the verge of happening in the broader American theater industry. Of folks saying, "I'm not returning to that structure. I'm going to keep doing theater, but I refuse to come back under those terms and conditions." And indeed, the protest that was announced for this week. I think is a part of that, that there is a different protest serve, uh, surge happening of a rise of uh, artists and arts workers who are newly politicized and whose consciousness has been fortified by the now 15 month shutdown uh, in ways that it might make it difficult to just reopen without reorganization without transformation, without a re, re, recalibration or re, restructuring of priorities. And so I do think the culture shock of return for the American theater is going to be characterized um, by, I would suspect, more declarations of independence or declarations of defiance, perhaps, as artists come back and saying, I'm not going to work under those conditions. You need to make a change or you don't have my labor. And I think it will be interesting to see how the genre of quitlet emerges and whether or not it takes its cues from how academia's quitlet works. Because academia's quitlet work, quitlet, hasn't really had an impact on the field of academia. It's raised consciousness, but there's been no structural changes broadly. But I wonder if in the theater, 
the rising of de- the rising uh, the rise of declarations of independence or of de- declarations of defiance, whether in the smaller ecosystem, the smaller industry of the American theater, whether or not that might is might be poised to have a more transformative impact. So that's sort of what I'm thinking about this week and what does it mean to step away? Because we will continue to have people step away in the manner that Scott Rudin did of offering a template apology that doesn't really promise to make any changes to the structure and makes and asserts the capacity to make personal individual changes in, in, in amends for or in compensation for past bad acts sort of a rehabilitation approach to uh, stepping away. Whereas I think what both Olivo and Hulis' models sort of suggest is I am stepping away as a declaration of independence that my artistry is not reliant exclusively and entirely on the structures of value and the structures of meaning that um, that the American industry, uh, the American theatrical industry has trained me to believe it did. Now, of course, we've got Olivo, a Tony Award-winning Broadway musical superstar. We've got Chiara Hudas, a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright who's written a book and produced a major motion picture, all these things. These are folks who are speaking at the relative top level. And then a lot of other folks who might be have less to lose at the other end of the spectrum. What this does open up, again, I think for a great many arts workers, are the folks in the middle, the folks who don't necessarily have places to step to, maybe don't have financial nest eggs to, to, to blunt the transition, especially in the context coming out of the last 15 months of shutdown. And so I think what it's going to be is going to be sort of other collective action creates a climate change um, and creates an action orientation toward transformation that will be in any ways different. So um, more to be seen, more to be seen. And once again, uh, but again, I think what I'm interested in is how we are seeing the surge of genres. What last time I was talking about, why are there so many manifestos? And now I'm interested, why are there so many declarations of independence? And I'll be interested to see if the, in the theater context, at least, the declarations of independence become declarations of defiance in ways that might actually have a different transformative impact. But I'm a historian, not a psychic. I'm just watching. I'm just watching and curious. I'll be taking notes as it goes. But I hope you will be, too. And with that, I'll close and send us out in our traditional fashion. Stinky Lulu Says is an independent project of Stinky Lulu Productions, recorded in Princeton, New Jersey, which is the unceded ancestral land of the Lenny Lenape. As I join you today, I do so in honor of the ongoing history and living culture of the Nanticoke Lenny Lenape people, in honor of the other indigenous caretakers of these lands and these waters, of the elders who lived here before, of the indigenous people living today, both within and beyond the sound of my voice, and of the generations yet to come. Stinky Lulu Says the podcast began in the summer of 2016 with a cycle of six episodes that are still somewhere on SoundCloud. After laying dormant for several years, the podcast got rebooted for six episodes in the spring of 2020 in the context of the early days of the COVID-19 shutdown, both as a way to respond to the unfolding crisis and also as a teaching resource for a course I was then teaching in 21st century Latinx drama. 
a brief summer's hiatus followed those first six episodes, but then, with our campus still closed the following fall, Stinky Lulu says return for a cycle of 10 or 11, depending on how you count episodes, in the fall of 2020, running basically August through November, as part of a new course, a different course, Theater and Society Now. That course is a course um, that came back in the spring of 2021. So this fourth cycle of episodes began in the beginning of February and continues to land in your podcast stream most Sundays, at least through the end of of the month of April of 2021. And at that point, uh, the end of April will likely mark the beginning of an indefinite and possibly permanent hiatus for the podcast. But as always, if you have something you would like to have your say about what Stinky Lulu says, you can always find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Stinky Lulu, S-T-I-N-K-Y-L-U-L-U. You can also always email me via my Princeton address or at StinkyLulu at gmail.com. Links to resources referenced in most episodes can mostly be found in the corresponding weekly edition of my Theater Click newsletter. For a link to the newsletter's archive and to other resources, look for the Profe Herrera tab on my Princeton University Scholar page. That's scholar.princeton.edu slash bherrera. A direct link to the Profe Herrera tab is also the pinned tweet on my Twitter profile page, at StinkyLulu. That Profe Herrera tab is also where you'll find the link to the transcript for today's episode. Transcripts are typically available within 48 hours, give or take, of the podcast first posting. So until next time, as you maintain your social distance, as you do what you can to take care of yourself and your beloveds, as you keep wearing that dang mask, even if you're vaccinated, Hold tight to the words of Dr. Kamara Phyllis-Jones. Be strong, be safe, be anti-racist. And as we all do, whatever we can do along those lines, as we stay fierce in both our artistry and our advocacy, I invite you to join me in my belief that so long as we find a way to keep listening to each other, we together can grow forward, even through this. At least, that's what Stinky Lulu says. <laughs>